This is Publishers Weekly Radio, the authority on all things books and publishing, with everything you need to know from your favorite books and the world in which they live to bestseller lists and publishing news. Here's the inside story on your favorite story. Publishers Weekly Radio, with your hosts, Rose Fox and Mark Rotella. Hello and welcome to Publishers Weekly Radio on the web at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and now on iTunes too. I'm Rose Fox and I'm a reviews editor at Publishers Weekly. And I'm Mark Rotella, Senior Editor of Publishers Weekly. We're bringing you the very best of book talk directly from the PW offices in New York City, the heart of the book publishing world. We're here for you and we want to answer your questions. So send them to us at pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet them to pubweeklyradio, that's pubwklyradio radio on Twitter. Today, we'll be talking with Rose George about her new book, 90% of Everything, Inside Shipping, the Invisible Industry that Puts Clothes on Your Back, Gas in Your Car, and Food on Your Plate. Then, PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal will chat with us about the recent merger of Penguin and Random House, two of the world's biggest publishing companies. But first, here's a sneak peek at next week's Publishers Weekly bestseller list, powered by Nielsen Bookscan. So I, I want to start with fiction this week because um, this is this is hilarious. I, okay, I, good. I admit good. this is like a little bit of of uh, um, not not even Schadenfreude exactly, but um, yeah, we we have a new number one book this week. It was just barely on our list last week as one of those books that only had a, a day or two out in the world and therefore hadn't sold enough to really rank. So last week's rank, it was 35. This week, it's number one. Um, it is Mistress by James Patterson and David Ellis. Sold uh, 37,000 copies in its first week, uh, which is pretty great. Very mm-hmm. impressive. Uh, it knocks Robert Galbraith to the cuckoo's calling down to number two. Um, and uh, incidentally, uh, the, the Galbraith book, which of course was actually written by J.K. Rowling, um, has now passed 150,000 copies sold. So not not too bad for something that had only sold 400 copies before Rowling was outed. Oh, that's huge. Um, but in the meantime, we have this uh, this James Patterson book co-written by David Ellis. Now, James Patterson obviously has written over 100 books, um, but he's done most of them with co-authors, which means that um, Patterson fans have now developed their own opinions as to which co-authors are, are better. Uh, you know, which ones they like, you know, when they were reviewing a James Patterson book on say Amazon, um, they're no longer reviewing a James Patterson book. What they're actually doing is reviewing the co-author, um, because they all know what to expect from James Patterson. And so they try to analyze how much of the book was actually written by the co-author. Um, and I have to say that the reviews for this one are uniformly negative. If you pull up the Amazon page for Mistress, which again, 37,000 copies sold, obviously Patterson has a following. The front page is nothing but one star reviews it's painful and they say things like um, this book is simply drivel and James Patterson should be ashamed and embarrassed I've read 25 to 30 books of his over the years and I normally eagerly wait the next installment but this is a co-authored waste of time he is one of the great authors of his generation who writes tight compelling novels that are well researched and always full of suspense I can't believe he even read this before allowing to go to print never mind actually writing any of it Um, and there are, are 
many other comments like that. Uh, throwing in the towel, a few chapters in, not worth my time, but Patterson is laughing all the way to the bank. I'm a huge Patterson fan, but this was a waste of money. Uh, sorry I bought it. I hung in there for six chapters. And I just didn't see the point. And finally, in all caps, I'm not at all pleased with JP's lending his name to other crappy author wannabes. This is amazing to me. I mean, is are, is the author, uh, the co-author listed on the book jacket itself as, yeah. as with other nonfiction yeah, books? They're, so, they're listed so is this, as co-authors. And is this person been uh, uh, reviewed by uh, uh, people uh, on Amazon before? Is this his first book or has he done others? Uh, that's a very good question. He has done other books um, and he's a New York Times bestseller, they say. Though right. whether, again, that is in and of his own right or uh, he's a bestseller in concert with Patterson um, is not entirely clear. But it looks to me like he's done a whole lot of uh, actually solo books. Um, they're all thrillers uh, with titles like The Last Alibi and The Wrong Man. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, PW has uh, reviewed them quite positively, actually. We, we reviewed The Last Alibi and said uh, that Ellis conceals and reveals information like a skilled poker player in his strong fourth legal thriller. And he's an attorney, so um, you know, he writes these courtroom scenes that are apparently very vivid and well-described, um, plenty of plot twists. Uh, and that's the book of Ellis's that came out on his own August 1st of this year. So it's fascinating to see two books that are essentially by or co-authored by the, the same author who come out within two weeks of each other and get uh, such wildly different right. responses. Yeah, sure. And with with Patterson, have any of his co-authors gone on to write their own books? Oh, I'm sure many of them have. I mean, the idea of writing with someone like Patterson is to, to launch yourself. Um, Ellis had actually co-authored Guilty Wives mm. with, with Patterson as well, um, I guess a, a year or two ago. And uh, again, that that one didn't get a whole lot of positive right. attention either. So I, I think some of this is just about, um, you know, finding the right co-author. You know, Ellis on his own satisfies Ellis fans. Right. Ellis co-writing Patterson doesn't satisfy Patterson fans. And uh, I, I think that's a little bit of, of interesting nuance there. I just, I just thought it's, uh, I mean, it's always interesting to me when these, these mega best-selling books by these you know, very uh, top authors um, you know, come come out and uh, are her trashed, including by fans. But they keep selling. They keep selling and selling and selling. Um, and uh, and and I always find that in, an interesting phenomenon. But it is worth also looking at Ellis's solo work, um, where people say this is great, four stars, five stars. And then you look at Guilty Wives uh, or at Mistress that he's co-authored with Patterson, and you get people saying very disappointed. Right. Right. Sure. So what's up in uh, nonfiction this week? Well, uh, debuting at number 10 is a book called These Few Precious Days, The Final Year of Jack and Jackie. And this is by Christopher Anderson. Now, Christopher Anderson has written, uh, I want to say, 
14, 15 New York Times bestsellers, uh, most of them on uh, various royal families, uh, let's say two royal families, uh, that of the UK and that of the US. The royal family say. here is the Kennedys. Uh, so he, he's written, uh, I guess, the, the two previous books that were uh, reached number one on the bestseller list, The Day Diana Died and similarly titled The Day John Died. Uh, so he's also written uh, Madonna, the unauthorized uh, biography, as well as Barbara, the way she is. And like I said, this book it lands at number ten. Not surprising in the final year of Jack and Jackie, just when you thought there could be no more written about the the uh, the couple, there it is. And at number twelve is a book called The Sports Gene, Inside the Science of Extraordinary Athletic Performances. And this is written by David Epstein, who's a senior writer at uh, Sports Illustrated. He writes on uh, science in sports, the science of sports. And he, this book talks about he, he, he probes, is there a gene? Is there one gene that determines or predetermines someone's athleticism? And here he's done a lot of research, uh, such as on Tiger Woods, Serena Williams, Michael Jordan, and interviewed a lot of science and, and applies science to this. And basically what he finds is that there, the genes do play a role, but it's not just one gene. And it could be a gene uh, that... Uh, perhaps enable someone to produce oxygen more quickly. So uh, a runner, as, as he was uh, at Columbia University, uh, versus someone else who just simply does not have that gene. And he talks about nurture versus nature. I mean, is this something that you can work towards uh, using uh, uh, the 10,000 hours of practice. This is something uh, that was put forth a few years ago uh, about whether it, an athlete or anyone who practices 10,000 hours will then be able to reach the highest level uh, of, of competition, be it in athletics or in music. We uh, and like I said, this this book uh, is at number twelve. It's been reviewed really well, very widely. Uh, we say that overall, its conclusions challenge few assumptions, uh, perhaps based on the uh, subtitle of the book. Uh, but we also say that he comes closest, and I'm quoting, to scoring a home run in his provocative and thoughtful focus on the relationships between gender and race and genetic determination. Why do male and female athletes, for example, compete separately? And are there genetic reasons to do so? So he, he's really doing a lot with this book. And um, like I said, it's getting great reviews elsewhere. And, and I also tend to think that sports is a big topic, especially when people try to evaluate and try to guess as to who might be a great athlete. I mean, he uh, he talks about uh, baseball players and how uh, the best uh uh, batters, for instance, or the most successful batters might be uh, genetically predisposition to see better than most people, such as the stitches on a ball when they're formed, either a fastball or a curve, to see in that moment, that, that millisecond, the formation that the stitches are and to determine where you're going to, you know, where, whether you're going to hit the ball or not. So, um, People like this kind of stuff. So anyway, there it is at number twelve. And um, when they, when he talks about sex and race and sex, particularly the idea of, of sort of sex segregated 
uh, sports is is getting challenged a bit. You have um, athletes like Castor Semenya. Um, you you have uh, athletes say, I'm going to totally space on her name, the WNBA star who said she was going to try out for the NBA. Um, you know, you you have you have either uh, women who are challenging this or intersex athletes who are challenging this. I mean, does he look at people with uh, XXY chromosomes at at intersex athletes and talk about how you know, the the spectrum of of sex differentiation rather than just male and female or um or does he not get into that so much because i feel like that's been a very hot topic recently yeah i'm not too sure with this book uh whether he gets into that i mean what what he does talk about is uh let's say like breaking down according to race i mean uh people have long thought like jamaican sprint runners or sprint runners from jamaica i mean there's some of the most successful sprint runners in the olympics people have thought uh scientists have thought and put forth the uh the hypothesis that they descended from uh uh slaves former slaves who had run away and therefore the fastest ones are the ones who then uh um would you know procreate with passing along those fast genes uh-huh. when in effect what he looks when he looks at the science it doesn't sh- shed, you know it doesn't show that what he says is it just so happens that these uh the the, the a lot of it is determination and so you have people competing for a singular sport in Jamaica and they are all competing so what you may have is a gene is a gene that determines that that governs your determination uh, so this is this is what he's looking at too so. uh, yes because that first theory sounds uh, ridiculous yeah <laughs> <laughs> so and those are the two those are the two big books on uh, the nonfiction list so we'll see what pops up uh, next week and and uh, as we've talked about before uh, as we get out of summer into spring, uh, we're going to be seeing this list change more in, and fall, more. I'm sorry, into fall. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I'm, I'm talking about maybe about the spring-like weather we've been experiencing recently. Oh, it's been wonderful. I, yeah. I, uh, I've been enjoying the breezes. It's actually, this is perfect reading outside weather. I know people talk yeah. about beach books. Uh, I'm, I'm about as white as it's possible for a person to be. If I took a book this to the true. beach, I would look like a cooked lobster. <laughs> right. um, but in, in this weather when it's a little breezy and a little cloudy this is when i want to be outside in the park reading a book very true very true so i'm looking forward to those uh those september books starting to hit our radar with just a couple of weeks of august left me too <laughs> i'm rose fox and i'm mark rotella and this is publishers weekly radio next up nonfiction author rose george will take us into the fascinating world of container shipping we'll be right back Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella, and you're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Today, we've got Rose George on the line. She's the author of 90% of Everything, Inside Shipping, the Invisible Industry that Puts Clothes on Your Back, Gas in Your Car, and Food on Your Plate. Thank you for joining us, Rose. Thank you for having me. It's a real pleasure to have you with us. So your book explores the world of container shipping, um, and you mostly do that from the point of view of the Kendall, which is a container ship in the Maersk line. So um, describe the ship for us, if you would, uh, its contents and its crew. Well, I'll, I'll give you my first impressions of, um, of the ship when I stood on the quay at Sigleitstow, which is a large, uh, our largest container port in the UK. And my first impression was, 
Oh my goodness, it's huge. <laughs> um, it's a, but it's actually a mid-sized container ship, so um, it carries uh, containers in the industry are known as boxes. So it carries um, it carries about six thousand five hundred boxes containers. So that makes it not a very big ship, but to me, it's just enormous. I mean, it's three football fields long. That's that's um, soccer pitches, I should say. Um, um, ten stories high, so it's, it's a couple of dozen Eiffel Towers in height. Um, wow. It's just a big, big thing. <laughs> and, there, and there are, you know, hundreds of thousands, a hundred thousand working ships at sea, So, and some of them, they're not all this size, and, and only 600 of them are container ships, but there are these huge ships just doing their business sort of out of sight on the high seas. Um, so, yeah, it was a lovely ship, um, painted blue called Merce Kendall, um, and I spent five weeks on it, and I uh, didn't want to get off. And what, uh, what is the size of the crew on a typical container ship this size? Well, I've, I've asked my friends that question. I've asked them to guess, and um, they usually come up with, you know, 50, 60, or they can, might compare it to a Navy ship, which will have at least several hundred, probably a thousand or so. And there were 19 uh, crew on my ship, two apprentices and 19 crew, and me. Wow, but I mean, that, that ship is practically the size of a small town. Yes, it is, and it has engines the size of a house, 80,000 horsepower. Um, it's carrying all that stuff, just hundreds of thousands of things it's carrying. But it, modern ship, if you go into the, onto the bridge, the navigation deck of a modern ship now, you're not going to find any brass wheels or you don't find any wooden wheels or brass right. or, or, or stuff like that. You're going to see something that looks a little bit like a jet cockpit because there's so much automation in shipping now. That said, it, it's, a, it's still very, very vital to have humans on board because you need human eyes at any time at sea. But um, these are modern, modern, highly technological ships. And um, as in most technological advances, we've just reduced the size of the human resources we need to run them. The way you describe the industry, it, it seems Byzantine. How does the container industry work, and why do you think so much of it is unknown? It is. I mean, shipping as a whole is is huge and complex and unusual in many ways because it's it's still run by family firms, a lot of it. Um, it's still um, quite secretive. It's quite inward-looking. Um, I don't know whether that's... I haven't understood yet whether that's deliberate or it's just the fact that no one's really paid attention to the shipping industry since pretty much the Second World War when the Merchant Navy won the Battle of the Atlantic for us. Um, and I think it's just an industry that's got on with what it does, which is basically underpinning our economies and fueling globalization, um, but pretty much out of sight. Um, and there are reasons for that, because these ships are so huge that they're now not able to uh, berth in city centers like they did before. So Manhattan's wharves and, um, soon became obsolete when the containers came in and ships got bigger and bigger. So they're now in Port Newark or industrial areas, and people just can't get to them anymore. Well, take us on a typical journey on one of these ships, say, through the Suez Canal. Did you, in fact, go through the Suez Canal on this journey? I did. Yes, I did. Um, my trip was from Felixstowe in the UK to Singapore, um, and that's, that was Merce Kendall's regular loop at that time. So she would go to Asia carrying mostly empty boxes and then bringing back 
stuff from Asia to sell to European uh, markets. Um, so we called at about six ports and uh, traveled through five seas, two oceans, traveled down the Suez Canal. We went through pirate waters of the Indian Ocean. Um, luckily, didn't see any pirates, although there were a couple of close calls. Um, and made it safely to Singapore, which is, when you think about it, quite an incredible thing to do. But they, it does it every month. Yeah, no, I've I've flown to Singapore, and just doing that by air is uh, it feels like a tremendous journey. I can't even doing it from imagine doing it from the UK and by ship. I mean, no wonder it, it took well, you five weeks. Yeah, well, in a way, it's a lot easier actually by ship. You don't get jet lag. <laughs> so, you, um, <laughs> right. in fact, it's such it's such a it's such a strange and fascinating environment. But it actually sort of creates its own time. And I don't I don't mean that in a poetic way. But it's up to the captain and the first officer to set when the hours go back. So they try and do it in a way that uh, the, the seafarers don't get too much um, discombobulation from going because sometimes say if they have to go through the Pacific. That's three time zones in as many days, and that's just very hard on them, and they're also trying to do a full-time job. So you don't really get jet lag on a ship if, if your captain knows what you're doing. Huh. I had never thought of that, but I guess it makes perfect sense. Um, so you had mentioned going through pirate waters. Tell us a little bit about the, the threat of piracy um, and, and why it continues to be a threat despite that area being so highly trafficked. So I went to, I took um, my ship through Pirate Waters in 2010, the summer of 2010, and those 2010, 2011 were real, really the high times of Somali piracy. At one point, a few months after I disembarked, there were 544 seafarers being held hostage by Somali pirates. And um, it was, I was, I was nervous. I was really nervous. And um our ship was thought to be impervious because it had quite a high freeboard, so that's the air, you know, the side of the ship that the pirates would have to scale with ladders, um, and that was 10 meters, so it was thought to be too high for them to scale. But I always thought, well, you know, pirates learn. I mean, they evolve. So it was quite it was quite nerve-wracking, and as soon as we got to the bottom of the Suez Canal and ended up steaming towards the Gulf of Aden, the ship changed, so all the portholes leading onto the deck were blocked with cardboard so that pirates couldn't see in and couldn't could be quite easily disoriented, um, so they wouldn't know which deck to attack first. Um, we had double watch on the bridge, 24 hours. And there's just a general air of nervousness. They pretend the crew pretended not to be nervous, but I mean they're doing they were doing that every month. So it's not it wasn't a small thing. And we did make it through safely, but mm-hmm. uh, many ships didn't. Now the good news is that since I took that trip, um, Somali piracy has diminished dramatically. There haven't been any attacks for a very long time, months and months. And though there are still 100 seafarers being held hostage, and some of them have been held for a year and a half or even more. Um, but piracy has now moved over to West Africa, so it's like a mattress. You know, you push one bit down and it bounces up in, in another place. So it's still a problem. Um, and the reason, to answer your earlier question, as to why there's so much piracy in the Indian Ocean is because it's so huge. Um, no matter how trafficked it is, it's still you're going to get a ship with 100 miles of you know, ocean around it, and uh, it, sure. if a pirate ship comes to climb it, then it's uh, easy pickings. Now, if you could tell us a little bit about the environmental effects of shipping. I mean, you write about that in your book as well. 
Yes, well, I was looking at, I was particularly looking at um, the fuel that ships use because there's been some very interesting research came out um, the last few years. Shipping has basically been getting on with what it does for the last 50, 60 years. And one of the things it has been doing is using a fuel called residual fuel oil, which is known in the industry as bunker fuel. And it, it was described to me as really horrible stuff. So it's the dregs of the refinery. And if it was, it, you could probably walk on it if you solidified it. Um, <laughs> but if you're on the high seas, you'll see ships belching out this black smoke, and that's the bunker fuel. And the reason they use it is because it's cheap. And it costs quite a lot of money to run a ship, several hundred thousand dollars a day sometimes. And um, so, but a researcher um, called Daniel Lack at NOAA started looking at the plumes from the funnels and he sort of did it accidentally. He was doing something else and he came across, he managed to get some um, some data and it was pretty shocking. And um, it's been calculated that the 15 largest ships emit as many emissions as uh, 750 million cars. Wow. And all in all, wow. all in all, even even though shipping is actually pretty benign as a method of transport, if you compare it to aviation or trucks, it's 10 or 11 times greener than sending something by truck. It's about 100 times greener than sending something by a plane. But because there's so much of it, because there are 100,000 ships, it still contributes of global emissions. And if you put emitting countries in a list, then it comes just below Germany. So it's not not a benign industry in its emissions. Um, And again, there is some good news is that people are starting to look at it. The IMO, the International Maritime Organization, is beginning to look at this. So things are changing. And you had mentioned underwater noise pollution in the book, which I hadn't even heard about before, um, though uh, obviously once I read your description, it made sense. Can you tell us a little bit about noise pollution underwater and what its effects are on marine life? Yeah, this was, it was very shocking to me, too. I also had not considered that, and I, I, I came across a, a really wonderful book called The Urban Whale by a bunch of scientists in um, New England. It's a really wonderful book. And... Um, that introduced me to the North Atlantic right whale, which is a critically endangered species of whale. And it was called the right whale because whalers used to think it was the right whale to hunt. Um, and, but now the threat to it is not uh, whalers, it's, it's noise. And the reason for that is that a lot of marine mammals um, and marine creatures use sound to communicate because sound travels much more efficiently underwater than light. Um, and so they need an acoustic range, but because of man-made activity in the ocean, shipping for a start, because of the noise of the propellers, um, sonar, seismic surveys, because of all this, you find now that some, for example, some humpback whales have had their acoustic range reduced by 90%. And the North Atlantic right whale, we're not sure of the effect of acoustic pollution, but um, there's a researcher called Ross Rolland who's been trying to measure stress levels in North Atlantic right whales, and um, she's finding some really disturbing data. How, how do you uh, even... Things, things are not good. How do you even measure stress in a whale? Well, she, she happened to be going out on a research vessel during the week of 9-11, and um, she was about to go out 
uh, to do her research and then they saw on the TV that 9-11 had happened so they were obviously shocked and sitting there crying and then after a few hours they just said look we, we still have to do our work so they went out on Cape Cod and um, uh, there was no shipping and no aviation and oh, so she, ca- right. she carried on yeah right so it was a pre-industrial ocean that's how she described it so she carried on getting her data. She was doing it by gathering whale scat, whale poop, and, and measuring the stress hormones. Mm-hmm. But then about 10 years later, she kind of just forgot about it or shelved it. And then about 10 years later, someone mentioned this. She said, oh, I've got this data that I could compare with other data she'd got. And she compared it. And that's where she discovered that during that week where there was no shipping noise, no aviation noise, um, the whale stress levels had really diminished. So she found that pretty shocking. It's it's really fascinating research. That's fascinating. It really is. And and I mean, how, how much sound is 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 uh, emitted from a ship, or is this? Are we talking several ships within hundreds of miles could produce this? Well, um, the, the sound of a really really large tanker or container ship can travel hundreds of miles. Can travel across half an ocean, and. Um, so it's really powerful because sound travels so much mm-hmm. more efficiently. And if it falls into certain channels in the, in the water, it can. They they did scientists did one test where they sent a sound from really across from one ocean to another. So for, sorry, from one side of the ocean to another. So it's quite it's quite astonishing how powerful sound is in the ocean. And the ocean isn't naturally a quiet place. I mean, you have waves breaking, you have other noises. But the trouble with ships um, is their propellers. Because of something, they, how they operate is when underwater they, they cause something called cavitation, which has been described to me like um, bubble wrap. So the popping of bubble wrap, but constantly and quite noisily. Um, it's wow. also been described to me as kind of constant background noise. So if you live next to a freeway, it's probably like that noise for a whale, which can be, you know, distracting. So it, it could, they don't know yet, but it could have an effect on breeding patterns. It could have an effect on stress levels. It could have an effect on their weight, their health. It's uh, it's ongoing research. And um, you know, we I, I was reading through your book, and obviously there there's a lot of concern for the effects on marine life. But I I also um, found some pretty shocking stuff in there about the effects of shipping on human life. Um, you quote the brother of a man who died when a ship sank, uh, saying that something like two thousand people a year die at sea. Uh, do you do you think that number is accurate? And why are these deaths almost never reported the way, say, plane crashes are reported? Well, because they don't happen at once. I mean, I, I wrote some, uh, my previous book was about sanitation, and it was a similar problem with diarrhea. Diarrhea doesn't get reported back because it happened single, you know, a person here, a person there, and it just doesn't get seen as a kind of crisis. But, yeah, 2,000 seafarers are supposed to die at sea. I think that's a UN figure. Um, and uh, But it, this is a heavy industry. I mean, it's a heavy industry. These are huge ships. There's a lot of machinery. There's a lot of things that can go wrong. Sailors can... Uh, asphyxiate if they go down into a sealed tank, say the anchor, where the anchor is stored. They can be hit by machinery, they can be thrown by a wave, and we must remember that that, that um, ships are sailing on the most dangerous element that we, we know. I mean, the sea is, is an unforgiving place, and no matter how safe we make ships, and there are all sorts of regulations about safety at sea, but ships still sink. They just do. And um, so I wanted to, in that chapter, I wanted to just find 
a ship that had sunk, not one that was got particularly any news coverage, and just look at it and see what happened and see what the procedure was afterwards. And it was it was it was quite shocking actually, because uh, what people don't realise when they go to sea, for example, cruise passengers often don't realise that they're often sailing on a little bit of a foreign country, depending on what flag the ship is flying. So this ship, particular ship, was a little piece of Panama. So once this British guy had lost his brother who drowned when the ship went down, he could only appeal to Panama. He had no rights in any other way. And he was pretty surprised by that. This is your third book, After Life Removed, which explores the lives of refugees in and from Liberia. And, and then you wrote The Big Necessity, which you just mentioned, which is about human race. Where do your ideas come from? Uh, from articles? Or what interests you in these? Um, well, <laughs> it's quite a long story, but I'll keep it short. Um, so A Life Removed was actually, it was a commission. Uh, someone came to me, knew my writing. I wrote a lot about things like, you know, refugee, social issues, foreign foreign affairs, that kind of thing. So they just wanted a particular, they wanted a book, and, and they actually, they gave me three months to write it, and actually had to write it in three weeks. So um, that was really fascinating, because it was in, set in Liberia. And there seems to be a Liberian theme going throughout all my books. Maybe that's the maybe that's the hook that um, I also right, went back right. to Liberia to interview the president of Liberia about sanitation to do with my second book, and then um, I write about Liberia in this book because Liberia has the second biggest flag registry in the world. So I really can't get away from Liberia. But I think I think what interests me is things that are hidden in plain sight. So I think. Things that don't take a lot of investigation, really. It's just that we're sort of choosing to ignore them. So refugees, because they're out of sight in some other country, some global catastrophe, you know, some catastrophe somewhere else. Uh, sanitation doesn't really get much attention. We don't pay any attention to our sewers except when they overflow or our toilets when they back up. This is true. Um, this is true. Which is, you know, that must be how diarrhea has become the second biggest killer of children and still is not being properly addressed. Um, and seafarers and shipping. Well, I went to sea, actually, for the first time, I went to sea in a container ship in 1999, and um, I, I crossed the mid-Atlantic following the route of the Titanic with 22 Indians, which had two uh, effects on me. One was that I, I didn't eat curry for about three years, and the other was that um, uh, I thought, this is a really strange world. This is completely alien, because it's, it's a very alien environment, obviously, to be at sea. But it's just these enclosed spaces in the midst of all that immensity. It just makes for a really fascinating um, topic. And I thought, well, this is something that can occupy me quite easily for the next few years. So. And I wanted to go back to sea. And, and that sounds almost literally alien. I mean, my, my one of my jobs here is um, covering the science fiction and fantasy. And when you talk about an enclosed environment in the middle of nothingness, I think of spaceships. Yeah, but it, one of the strange things, um, one of the quite shocking things about shipping is that astronauts are better connected to Earth than a lot of seafarers. So, for example, only a third of working seafarers now have Internet access at sea. So most seafarers live on these, these uh, ships for weeks at a time. They have very little time ashore because of the pace of the industry. They, they're probably going to be ashore for a couple of hours at most. Um, and they have no Skype. They have no browsing. They have, you know, they have, they have nothing that an average five-year-old kid would expect these days. Whereas, the, you know, as we know, Commander Hadfield and 
they can tweet from space, but um, a seafarer can not really tweet from sea. Wow. Um, so so what's, what's next for you? What's your next hidden in plain sight topic? Do you have something you're working on right now? I'm actually gravitating back towards sanitation a bit because I've been... I've been looking at um, actually menstrual health and the effect it has on education because it causes 25% of girls to drop out of school, which is an astonishing figure. Wow. So, wow, that uh, is. Yeah, so, so I heard that figure and I thought, and I immediately thought, hmm, what's going on there? So I'm actually going, I'm going to Bangladesh and Nepal in, in September for the Wellcome Institute um, to do some research and write a piece for them about exactly that and, and looking at menstrual health projects in um, garment factories so that women um, kind of to reduce absenteeism because women just don't know how to deal with having their period when they're at work so they just don't go to work. Well, good luck with you on that journey. <laughs> yeah, I know, another hidden topic. <laughs> yeah, right, right. We've been talking with Rose George. You can find her book, 90% of Everything, in stores right now. Rose, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. I'm Mark Rotella. And I'm Rose Fox, and this is Publishers Weekly Radio. Next up, PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal will walk us through the recent merger of Penguin and Random House, so stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Rose Fox. And I'm Mark Rotella. You're listening to Publishers Weekly Radio, direct from the PW offices in New York City. Every week we get insider info from one of the editors at Publishers Weekly. And today, PW Senior News Editor Rachel Deal has the lowdown for us on the merger of Penguin and Random House. Welcome, Rachel. Oh, thanks for having me. It's always nice to have you on. Um, so tell us uh, exactly what's going on with this merger. This is, this is huge and sort of unprecedented, I think, at least in recent times. It is. I mean, you know, it's something that um, it was announced earlier. Uh, it's been about six weeks, and um, I mean, on the one ha- on the one hand, you could say it's old news, um, but I think on the other hand, it's one of these things where um, it's still largely unknown how it's actually going to break down. Um, so the merger sort of was approved um, as of July first, and nothing has. Nothing much has actually changed um, except in name. Uh, you know, it will be the, the merged company will be known as Penguin Random House. But um, aside from that, I mean, right now it seems as if they're doing business as separate entities. Uh, by and large, their you know their offices remain um, intact and where they were, and no staff changes have actually taken effect yet either. So I think it's. Um, even though nothing's really happened uh, on this front, it's kind of the biggest story of the summer, I'd say, and that everybody's watching and waiting to see what will happen. Um, and there are some ideas about how people think uh, the sort of some of the largest issues will shake out. But um, again, right now, it's a lot of guessing and waiting. Well, with all the previous mergers, which obviously haven't been as big as this one, I think the main concern for authors for literary agents is is will will people be submitting to fewer places now uh or what will that be like when you submit manuscripts to uh to houses Have, has there anything been said about this i mean there's a lot of guessing going on um that's obviously one of i think the biggest concerns sort of for the editors at these houses and definitely for authors um and you know one 
sort of getting slightly technical, I mean, one of the biggest questions, I think, is will there be competitive bidding? Uh, right now at Random House, imprints can bid against each other for a book. Um, it's not the case at Penguin. Um, so, you know, obviously, I think agents and authors are hoping that the competitive bidding system will remain intact once Penguin Random House merges. But nobody knows for sure. I mean, the, the thinking is it will remain intact because uh, Random House is the majority stakeholder here. They're the bigger company, but nobody knows. Um, it, like I said, I do think that's the assumption. Um, and even putting competitive bidding aside, I do think there's just a general concern that, you know, no matter how you slice it, there are going to be fewer publishers that you're submitting to. Um, and not just fewer, but, I mean, Penguin and Random House were the two biggest of the big six. So, you know, even with competitive bidding, it definitely sort of changes the landscape of um, of the publishing houses and, and the options of places you have to go to publish your book. And, you know, Penguin has generally shown itself to be willing to have multiple imprints that handle similar things. Like they have both Ace and Rock for doing science fiction. They have uh, you know, a bunch of different, you know, Signet and Berkeley and other imprints for uh, for doing romance. Uh, whereas Random House, at least recently, had been consolidating all of those. So Delray and Spectra sort of right. got squeezed into one. Um, is there a sense that there's going to be further consolidation, uh, especially among sort of genre-specific imprints? or do we just not know yet? I mean, we don't know. I think the speculation is that there will be. Um, but, I mean, again, this it, it's guessing, um, certainly. I think, you know, I think the thinking is that a lot of imprints will be folded into one another. Whether that means, um, you know, it will result in you know, people getting laid off and sort of publishing fewer books, I don't know. But I do think sort of certain names will, will fall by the wayside at least. And, you know, imprints that are publishing in the same subject matter and genre are going to be folded under one name. Um, you know, I, I don't know if that means there will be sort of an overhaul on the scale um, that Random House sort of, you know, sort of recently went through to sort of change that divisional structure. But again, if you're going under the assumption that sort of um, the Random House way will be the overall way, I'd say yes. But, you know, again, it's it's guessing. So it's, it's tough to say. So what what's the advantage to Penguin in all of this? Um, I mean, you mentioned that Random House is bigger. It sounds like the theory is that because they're bigger, they kind of get to have their own way. They have the muscle. Um, what does Penguin get out of this merger? Well, I think the merged, I mean, the, you know, the thinking overall with the merged entity will be that, um, you know, you'll have a company that will have leverage against uh, retailers in a way that, you know, nobody's had before. So, you know, um, and I still think that's the thinking. And, you know, Penguin also gets the huge advantage of sort of the Random House uh, systems. You know, Random House has these really, I mean, has the best back-end systems. Um, you know, they can get the most books out the most quickly, and just overall, it's a, uh, it's a better system. So Penguin will have that for its books. And, you know, when the merger was announced, it was stated up front that, that they were not interested in cutting back a number of titles, that they were interesting, that they were, they were not interested in publishing less and 
they were interested in publishing better. And I do think that's possible. You know, once you sort of put um, these, you know, massive different lists together and all these different imprints, if you have the Random House systems and all these different books, I do think that's possible. How it's going to break down in terms of, um, you know, the the makeup of this one now massive company is still sort of very tricky. And, and I, you know, I think a lot of that's going to come down to things that are sort of particular to, I guess, the internal politics just of companies, you know, how do people work with each other? How do, um, how, how do things like that happen? Um, just in terms of the, the merging of, um, of cultures and, and, you know, the merging of sort of different, philosophies and work ethics and that kind of thing. And uh, they also, if I remember correctly, have different approaches uh, uh, with regarding ebooks and other distributors. Which model will they follow? Again, I mean, I don't. <laughs> I want to hesitate from saying I think everything is going to be the random house by you know, right? Um, but and. I think that remains a bigger question. I think that that's come up less. I mean, you know, certainly um, I think that, as I said, the biggest sort of, I think the, the biggest guessing games that have been around what high-level, um, high-powered executives um, might stay or go potentially. And, and, again, I think that's more kind of gossip. Um, and right. then... Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, just about kind of the competitive bidding is is the thing that I think, um, you know, people are most concerned about. And, and of course, I think, um, you know, job security is definitely a major concern for everybody at both companies. And um, even though they've said that there won't be any, or at least they've alluded to the fact that there won't be any uh, cuts, but there's still a concern. Yeah. There is still a concern. I mean, I think, um, again, the, 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 the prevailing notion has been that the major cuts are going to come to sort of the back office um, areas first and that those are unavoidable and those are going to happen. You know, I don't know, and I think people have said that they're really unsure about how, I mean, as we were just talking about, how the imprints could potentially be merged, um, what that will mean for divisions like editorial and marketing and publicity and sort of various digital divisions. Again, I mean, if they're really not going to cut back on title output, the assumption would be that you don't want to cut back on that staff. Um, So if that's true, you know, there shouldn't be massive cutbacks um, to staff in those areas. Then again, you know, you just, you hear people saying, well, mergers never go that way, you know, not sort of not looking at this is the history of publishing, but just this is the history of corporate mergers that, you know, there are always going to be um, staff cutbacks and and changes because that's the nature of um, merging companies. Right, so. sure. Um, and speaking of competition, I wanted to ask you briefly about uh, a piece you wrote recently about three different publishers who are competing to do 40th anniversary editions of Fear of Flying by Erica Jong. And um, I thought that was that was really interesting looking at a work like that. Um, and I assume that it's still under copyright um, since you know it's not that old. And so how how does it end up with three different editions? And how do these three different publishers try and compete with each other to bring those editions out? 
Yeah, it's interesting. Um, it's actually a case where it's definitely still under copyright. Um, but when the book was initially signed, uh, first of all, there were no what are now digital rights written into contracts, so those didn't even exist. Um, so uh, Henry Holt, which sort of initially signed it, didn't have e-book rights, and then also, as was the um, tradition then, houses often bought um, hardback and paperback rights separately, so Holt also didn't have the paperback rights. So um, when this notion, when the, sort of the anniversary rolled around um, of the book, and just to sort of uh, put the title in context, I mean, um, when Fear of Flying came out, it was, it became a million copy bestseller, and it was also a book that, um, in addition to being incredibly popular, was something a lot of people saw as a groundbreaking work in terms of um, its treatment of uh, female, uh, women characters and sex. I mean, the, the main character is somebody who is sort of very open about um, her interest in sex and men, and uh, so it was kind of a trailblazing title, I guess. Um, so... Because of that, um, and because you had a situation where the rights for all these different um, formats of the book were three different houses, what happened with the anniversary is these publishers actually, even though they have uh, different editions, they decided to work together to sort of uh, promote the anniversary. And um, it's it's kind of unique and it's unusual in that theoretically you could say they have competing editions, but um, they're sort of trying to, um, instead of promote it sort of by format, they're trying to sort of come together to promote um, the actual anniversary and just kind of to draw attention to the title itself, which will hopefully translate, they're hoping, anyway, uh, into sales for each of them. So, And the ebook rights are owned or are controlled now by Open Road? That's correct. Yeah. Wow, I wonder if this is going to be. If we're going to, this is the future of how books that uh, were acquired before ebook rights uh, were around. I wonder if this might be the future for them. Well, and also, I, I feel like um, this is actually a very modern way of promoting a title, of saying that uh, you know you're you're interested in promoting it as a concept, almost as a product or a brand in and of itself, yeah. rather than in a format. Um, and the idea of, of three publishers working together to do that is kind of novel. But you could even see it within one publisher promoting you know the hard co- the hardcover and the paperback and the ebook of edition of a book all at once, rather than seeing them as being in competition with one another. Yeah, I do. I mean, I and I think there there's definitely something to that. When I was speaking to uh, Tina Pullman at uh, Open Road, sort of about um, about this, I, I you know asked her. I said, you know, isn't there just something? I guess isn't there something counterintuitive potentially about working with somebody when you're theoretically competing with them? Um, you know, and she said that you know the belief is really that sort of all marketing is is good marketing, and you know um, that something good for one of the formats will really sort of raise all boats. And I I definitely think that's the case here. When I mean the main goal um, at the end of the day, regardless of which format people are going to buy, is I think all these publishers need to kind of remind people about the book and, and you know, either sort of draw readers who loved it once to return to it and then obviously to just uh, to bring awareness of it to people who have 
maybe never heard of Erica Jong or um, or the book itself. So. Well, Rachel, thank you so much for all of this. Oh, thanks for having me. Always a pleasure, and we hope you have you hope to have you on again soon. Okay, thank you. <laughs> and that's it for today's show. I'm Mark Rotella, and I'm Rose Fox, and you've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio. If you want to hear your question on the air next week, just email it to pwradio at publishersweekly.com or tweet it at pubweeklyradio. That's pub, W-K-L-Y radio on Twitter. We'd love to hear from you. You can find this and every episode of Publishers Weekly Radio on our website at publishersweekly.com slash pwradio and on iTunes, available for you to listen absolutely free. Check the site every week for a brand new episode, giving you the inside story on your favorite story. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Publishers Weekly Radio Show. 